0: Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday Morning Message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McLarty.
1: Ever since Adam and Eve sinned, all human flesh has been reckoned as sinful. I'm sorry, did I just leap right in? Silly rabbit. Segways are for kids. <laughs> Ever since Adam and Eve sinned, all flesh has been reckoned. As sinful. Paul tells us that the wages of sin is death. And then he also tells us that ever since Adam, all men die. Therefore, we see the evidence that all men are sinful. All human flesh is sinful because all men die. It's obvious if you want to argue that you are sinless that you are righteous that you are good it's easy for you to prove uh just don't die all you gotta do is not die and then we'll all believe that you're the sinless one but all humanity save one person Jesus Christ all of humanity is sinful flesh and that's our state everybody since Adam has died has decayed because sin courses through our human flesh. Meanwhile, God is so holy that he is not even touched by sin. He cannot look upon sin. He is separate from sin. He is high and raised up and separate from his creation. And therefore, the difference... The contrast between sinful flesh and God's holiness is absolutely huge. That's what I'm trying to stress. I'm trying to get you to get a hold of the idea that God is really righteous and holy and separate from all sin and that you are nothing but sin. And that you don't really have an option in that. If you're human flesh, you're sinful and I can prove it. Because you're going to die. So far, the ratio of death has been a perfect one for one. Everybody gets one. All of human nature, all of humankind demonstrates that contrast between the holiness of God and the unrighteousness of human beings. But you individually, in your personal life, you also demonstrate that conflict, that difference If you are a Christian person, you are still in the flesh. Therefore, you are still drawn to your sinful proclivities. Therefore, you are a sinful human being, and there's just no way around that. And then God chooses particular people, and he puts his Holy Spirit inside them. Uh, I'm going to emphasize the adjective there. It's not just his spirit, it's his Holy Spirit spirit. And the contrast between the holiness of God taking up residence in a sinner like you is a huge contrast. It's an enormous contrast. And so for the last couple of weeks, we have been talking about Paul's writing about that very dilemma. The fact that We have the righteousness of God by his Holy Spirit inside us, and yet we're still living in these tents of human sinful flesh, and the conflict ensues. Paul goes so far as to say we can't do the things we want to do. We may want to be right and holy and good. Do you, Jeff? Yeah, you do. You done it yet? No. No. On the other hand, you may want to party like it's 1999. Do you, Tom? Guilty. Uh, Guilty, yeah. (laughs) And yet the Holy Spirit of God has a hold on you, so do you do it? No. No. So it doesn't matter if what you want is to live a life of wanton sin. The Holy Spirit of God acting as a governor on your behavior will stop you from doing that. So you can't do what you want to do. But you also want to be righteous and holy and always good and always helpful and always giving and always sacrificing and always loving. You want to be that. And you can't be that either because the conflict between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of human flesh is a lifelong struggle. And so, we're picking up in Galatians 5. And we're going to start in verse 13. You should be familiar with these first comments by Paul. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another, which is everything Micah just read. As we've been going through the book of Galatians, really as we've been going through the last 22 years of preaching the grace of God, every so often people will contact me and say, well, then are you saying that good works don't count for anything and therefore we should not do any good works? I got that question just this week, which is why I decided we would start at verse 13. For we are called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but then do good things, which is through love serving one another. That's good stuff. The difference between the sovereign grace approach to good works and the what I would call Arminian approach to good works, is that they would say you do your good works in order to get justified and saved. And Paul has been saying repeatedly here that you can't be justified by your flesh. You can't be justified by the law. Therefore, your activity, your actions, your good works are not enough to get you justified. So then where do the good works fit? Will you do the good works because you're justified? You're justified by the finished work of Jesus Christ in saving you, eternally redeeming you, justifying you, righteousifying you in the court of God, but then as a consequence of your love. For him, you then love your brethren, and as a result, you do good works. And that's the way Paul always organizes his thoughts about good works. It's always, you are the saved, you are the redeemed, you are the blood-bought, you do belong to Christ, therefore, do good works. Paul never starts with do good works in order to get justified. That's what he's been arguing through this whole book of Galatians, that you can't be justified by works of the flesh. Otherwise, the Judaizers would be correct. When they said to the saints at Galatia, when they said to the Gentile believers, you need to be circumcised and keep the law, There'd be no problem with that. Paul would be fine with that. He would say, yes, yes, that's good works. Do that. That will help you get justified. But the reason that he stands so adamantly against the Judaizers and their approach to soteriology is specifically because you cannot be justified by your flesh. That means no matter how much your flesh tries to adhere to doing the law, and if you do a little bit of the law, you're a debtor to keep the whole of the law, and that won't get you justified. That's what Paul's been arguing through this whole book. You cannot be good enough in your flesh in order to obligate God to save you. And so your good works do not amount to so much credit on your account that when you get to heaven, God's going to size up your account and say, okay, you're a good person, come on in. This is a tough one for people to get. It's a really tough one for people to get because we've all been raised with the concept Good people go to heaven. No. No, Christ saves sinners. And sinful people, through Christ, end up in heaven as a result of his grace. And that's a tough one for people to get a hold of. And so Paul says... You were indeed called to freedom. There's no question about it. You're free from the law, but you're also free from your slavery to sin. Just a moment ago, we determined that Tom does want a party like it's 1999. He wants to do that, but he doesn't. He can't. He's too old. It's not in his mind. It's not in his conscience. He has been restrained by the Holy Spirit so that he can no longer do those things. So he is free from the constriction of the slavery of sin. Once upon a time, all Tom did, I'm assuming this one now, all Tom did was whatever Tom wanted to do. And he lived a sinful life life before God not worrying about his own sin or his own depravity he didn't worry about the things of God he didn't think about whether he was offending a holy righteous eternal God he just did whatever he wanted to do and then God put his Holy Spirit inside Tom Tom became conscious of his own sinfulness and his need for a savior and his behavior as a consequence changed but he's free He's free from the law and his flesh, and he's free from his slavery to sin that once upon a time was his master, so that now he can call Jesus Christ his Lord and his master because he has been freed from his previous master. So will Tom, in this instance, will Tom use his freedom For an opportunity for his flesh, will he say, well, you know what? I'm free in Christ. It's all under the blood. Christ died for everything, so I can still do whatever I want. Well, no, he doesn't live that way because the second half of the sentence is, but you don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for your flesh. But through love, you serve one another. Now, this morning, we're going to spend a great deal of time looking at the particular words that Paul uses in order to describe what the activity and the sins of the flesh are and what they look like. And he's going to compile a list. And at the end of the list, he's going to say, and stuff like that, because it's not an exhaustive list. Now, this is something that Paul does in several of his letters, where he lists the activity of the flesh versus the activity of the spirit. And I had to decide, are we going to go and look at all those lists? Are we going to compare those lists? Are we going to harmonize those lists from Paul? And then I decided, no, we're just going to concentrate on this particular list because I do think it will certainly give you a good sense of what Paul is talking about when he says the deeds of the flesh and the deeds of the spirit. For the whole law is fulfilled, says verse 14, in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care lest you are consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh, When he says walk by the Spirit, he means your manner of life, the way you conduct yourself, the way that you go through your life, the way you interact with other people. He says if you walk by the Spirit rather than the flesh, then you will end up not being able to fulfill those desires of your flesh because you're being led by the Holy Spirit of God. And so conduct yourself in this life By the Spirit of God. And if you're spending time in the Word of God, if you're spending time in prayer, if you're spending your life in the consciousness of God's existence and the existence of your Savior who paid a very high price to save you, if you're conscious of that, it's going to be impossible for you to do the things you used to do. You're no longer going to carry out the desires of the flesh. Now, I appreciate the fact that Paul also admits that the flesh has desires. You may be a blood-bought, spirit-filled Christian person today, and every once in a while, your weaselly, little, slimy, little fleshly brain is going to concoct some stuff in your head that might make you go, what was that? How did I think that? I'm supposed to be a person of God. I'm supposed to be a Christian. Why am I even thinking about this stuff? That is the proof positive. That your flesh is still depraved. That your flesh is still decaying and sinful. That your flesh is still paying the price. And that you are going to die. But... Because you have the Holy Spirit of God inhabiting you, you will discover the longer that you walk out your life with the Holy Spirit, the less and less you will be able to accomplish the things that your flesh desires. The desire will be there. But even James says the desire is not the sin. The fact that you think it, the fact that you want it, the fact that you desire these things, that's not the sin. He says the sin manifests when you go do it. When your desire becomes action, well, then it's rebellion against God. But I'm hoping that this is a word of comfort to you. That, yeah, every once in a while, your stupid little brain is going to think stupid little stuff. And that doesn't mean that you should beat yourself down and say, how could I be a Christian and still do this? This is typical of what it is to be Christian and be in the flesh, that you do have fleshly desire. I like the honesty of Paul. But I say, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Holy Spirit of God, and the Spirit sets its desire against your flesh. For these are in opposition to each other, so that you may not do the things that you please, but if you are led by the Spirit, if you're walking by the Spirit, if you're paying attention to the Word of God and the prompting of the Spirit in your life, you are not under the law. Paul continues to create this enormous contrast. It's a contrast that he wants you to be really clear about. You're either walking by the Spirit in faith toward Jesus Christ in faith that everything Jesus did accomplished your salvation that in Jesus Christ you are fully redeemed and that you're going to be eternally secure because as Hebrews 10:14 says by his one sacrifice he perfected forever those that he sanctified okay so you're either walking in that belief or You're going to be walking in your flesh, whether that's attempting to keep the law or whether that is every desire of your flesh being fulfilled within you. You're either going to walk by faith or you're going to walk by the flesh, one way or the other. And so much of modern Christianity is little more than people walking in the flesh, which is why there's so much fleshly entertainment in the church or why there's so much why there are so many programs in the church that tell you what you got to do you got to get busy you got to fix you you got to clean you up Paul says that's just another version of you fulfilling the desires of your flesh and so the flesh and its desires is against the spirit there is a conflict within you the spirit is against the flesh Because these two are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. So if you are led by the Spirit in contrast to being led by the law and your flesh, then if you're in the Spirit in Christ, you are not under the law. Do you get that? (laughs) Then don't let anybody put you back under the law. Because you'll do it right away. Yeah. Sure, it'll be other preachers, or sure, it'll be. But, but also, it'll be your own mind is going to say, I've really messed up today. I better do better. I better clean it up. I better fix it. Look, we all think that when we have a bad day, God must love us less. He's probably up there in heaven just really upset with us. Truth is, he knew you were like that when he saved you. Truth is, he predestined you, and he knew when he did that exactly what you were going to be like. But then we all get that sense where we have a good day in our own estimation. You know, like, ooh, I had a pretty good day today. I didn't sin too very much today. We forget about the fact that a miss is as good as a mile, but we, ooh, I had a pretty good day today. And then you end up thinking, God probably likes me today. Because whatever my pet sin was, I didn't indulge it as much today. So I'm doing good today. So God loves me more. The reason that is wrong is because God does not love you more or less based on you, your flesh, or your behavior. He loves you eternally because of Christ Jesus. What Christ Jesus did and accomplished on your behalf and his election of you, placing you in Christ and placing his Holy Spirit inside you, that is the basis on which he loves you with his everlasting love. It's, It's good news. It's good to know that God's love does not wax and wane like ours does. Far too often we construct a God of our own imagination based on us, based on the way we behave. Well, if it was me and you did that, I wouldn't like you much. Well, it's good you're not God then. So God himself bases his relationship with you, his love for you, his saving of you, his calling of you, his predestining of you, his justifying of you, his glorifying of you is all based on the finished work of Christ. It's not based on you doing stuff. Otherwise, the law would be helpful. But Paul draws the contrast and says, if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident. That word means obvious. The deeds of the flesh are obvious. In other words, Paul is kind of saying, I shouldn't have to tell you this. You know what the deeds of the flesh are. He says, you know when you're acting up. You know when you're being all egocentric and me first. You know when you're doing stuff that God says don't do. You know that. These things are evident. And then he's going to launch into a list. Now, the first three things that he's going to mention are deeds of the flesh of a sexual nature. The first one that he's going to mention is a word that you should all be familiar with, it's the Greek word pornia. It's the Greek word from which we get pornography. And that's a word that is used for like harlotry and incest, adulterous fornication. I got to be careful with my language, there's kids in the room. But that all falls into the category of illicit sex. And so Once he has said the deeds of the flesh are obvious, the deeds of the flesh are evident, the first one he went with is, and we all have this desire for sexual relations that are illicit, that are outside of the God-ordained plan for what sex is supposed to be. And the second one he mentions is translated as impurity, akatharsia is the Greek word, You hear the ah at the beginning of it. That's the alpha negative. It's taking a word and turning it in the opposite direction. It's taking the word for cleansed or clean and turning it in the opposite direction. You're not clean. It's a condition of physical or moral impurity. Sometimes it's translated to be foul. So it's a moral uncleanness in thought and word Or deed. Every one of these words, as we go through them, they should hit you square between the eyes. Because this is what Paul is saying, are the deeds of the flesh. They're obvious. These are the deeds of the flesh. And so when you hear these words and you think about it and you think, oh, yeah, I'm guilty, that's because you are part of humanity. It's because you are fleshly. The good news is, This is the kind of stuff Christ died for. After immorality and impurity, the English word is sensuality. Some translations go with debauchery. Also, Gaia, I think, is the way to pronounce the Greek word. It means licentiousness, to be promiscuous, to be undisciplined in sexual matters, Sometimes it's used to speak of filthiness, lasciviousness, wantonness, moral uncleanness. It connotes an open, shameless, brazen display of all three of the things we've already talked about. So he went from pornaya to impurity, moral impurity or uncleanness, which leads to a sense of debauchery Sensuality that is just open, shameless displays of the evils of the flesh. Okay, those are the first three words. You feeling pretty good about yourself now? Okay, good. The next two he lists are religious things. And that connection, by the way, as I was reading through these, I was always looking for connections, and it's probably not surprising. that Paul's mind would go right from sexual sins into religious sins because God refers to Old Testament idolatry, chasing other gods. He calls it harlotry. He makes that connection himself. But also, within most of the Gentile cities like Galatia, or certainly like Ephesus, or most of the cities like Corinth that he's writing to, part of heathen worship and heathen religion included sexuality. There was a lot of sex acts that were part of heathen worship. And so Paul makes this connection right from human sexuality to religion. The first one he comes up with is it's translated idolatry, but it's actually more complex than that. The Greek word is a compound of idolon or an image. That's where we get the word idol from. And latria, which is the act of divine worship. The compound word is idololatria. He took those two ideas of an idol to begin with, an image, and then he said bowing down and worshiping it as if it were divine. So literally the word means image worship. And so that's why I think Paul is combining the idea of sexuality with the idea of religion and worship, because those two things were combined so much in heathen culture. But then the other thing that was typical of heathen worship was something known as sorcery. This is another word you should be familiar with. It's pharmakia. It's the word from which we get pharmacy. Pharmacy. It's drugs, drugs as a spell-giving potion. So by extension, he's talking about magic. So he's talking about sorcery, he's talking about witchcraft, because in ancient times, the worship of evil powers was often accompanied by the use of drugs to create trances. Just so you don't think, well, yeah, that's back then, those people in the book of Revelation this same word was used a couple of times as a mark, as a sign of what human beings are going to be like when Christ comes back. A couple of times, John used this same word, pharmakia, in order to describe what human beings were going to be like. So it's a very present reality to this very day. So, worshipping of idols, image worship, and pharmakia, witchcraft, sorcery, in order to create alternate states of thinking and being as part of your worship. From there, Paul gets into eight societal evils. I didn't know what other category to put them under. He starts talking about the ways that we interact with each other, the way that we deal with each other. Now, remember that he just said that the fulfilling of the law is loving each other. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He just said that through love we're to serve one another. Now he's going to describe what the opposite of loving, sacrificial kindness would be to each other and describes the activity of the flesh, which are things that we just naturally tend to do in our interpersonal relationships. Am I boring you yet? Everybody okay? Okay, good. The first one that Paul lists is translated in the NASB as enmities. It means hatred. Anybody in this room ever hate anybody? Well, that's your flesh. The Greek word is ekthra. It means hostility. By implication, it means a reason opposition but it's even more interesting than that it's actually in a plural form which means that it's a feeling of enmity between groups pay attention to that Paul enlisting deeds of the flesh when he got to interpersonal relationships started with hatred fomented between groups of people what's going on in our society right now Exactly that, and by the way, our government seems to be emphasizing that as they create groups against groups, as they divide us from one another in the hope that they can gain greater support for their side by pointing at the other side and saying, we hate them. Paul lists that as a sin of the flesh, and it runs rampant in our society, then if there's hate between groups, you're naturally going to have strife or discord. The word is "eris" in the Greek. It means a quarrel. It means a contention. It means to set people at variance with one another. And it is the natural result of hatred. If you start out hating people, At some point, you're going to separate from them. You're going to create strife between you and them. The third word that is listed in the NASB is jealousy. We have talked about this word before. It is zelos in the Greek. And literally, it means heat. Or as a consequence, it's sometimes translated as zeal. Now, this kind of zeal, this kind of jealousy can be viewed favorably or unfavorably. God says that he's a jealous God. God burns with great zeal for his people. That is a positive thing. But we humans in our flesh, when we get jealous, it's usually not a positive thing. Our jealousy has a tendency to go toward envying somebody. And usually... Our jealousy toward another person is based in our own ego and self-centeredness. I'm unhappy because I see you and you have what I want. I'm jealous of you because you look like I want to look. Yeah, it's all about having this zeal, this hatred, this division, this strife that is based on me first and I'm upset that I didn't get everything I want, everything I think I deserve, and other people did get it. And that's not fair. So then, naturally, Paul's mind would go to thumos, which is translated outbursts of anger. The word thumos means breathing hard, literally. And so it is sometimes translated as fierceness or indignation or wrath. It means outbursts of temper that often come as the final eruption from smoldering jealousy. Yeah, if you're really jealous of other people and you're creating division, at some point... You're just going to let loose on them. At some point, they're going to have to experience your outbursts of temper and wrath. Temper is a rough thing. You ever had to deal with anybody who has a temper? <laughs> were you just saying, yes, you've dealt with people who have a temper, or were you saying, yes, I have a temper? With oh, okay, fine, fine. <laughs> yeah, so otherwise, otherwise, we were all afraid of you. <laughs> so, One of the things that temper does to you is that it self-justifies. And you start thinking you're justified in causing other people to suffer under your ill feelings and bad moods and bad temper. And you'll use it as an excuse. And you'll say, yeah, I just, I just destroyed you with my words. But hey, I have a temper. That's no excuse. That might be a description of your flesh. But Paul lists it as an act of fleshly sinfulness, that you have this fierce, hard-breathing outburst of temper when you erupt against other people. And you think they deserve it. The next word is disputes or some translate it as selfish ambition. That makes sense, considering that all the way through this list, I've been emphasizing that this has to do with your own self-centeredness. This has to do with your ego, with your narcissism, that you think other people deserve your wrath, because after all, they made you mad. Erethia is the Greek word. It means contentiousness, strife, But it is a self-aggrandizing attitude that is demonstrated by working to get ahead of others at the other's expense. So you don't care who you have to walk on, you don't care who you have to step on, as long as you look out for number one. As long as you're the important one, it doesn't matter those little people who weren't as good as you. You know, this is something that I suffered with for a while, because I used to think uh, that I was just really cool. And if you didn't understand how cool I was, that was your problem. And I used to use the phrase, this is hard to believe, I'm admitting this now. I used to, this is back in the 20s in my rock and roll years, I used to use the phrase, if you're not cool enough to hang, that's on you. Yeah! Yeah! Because, you, really? You too? Anybody else in this room? Yeah. Yeah, well, naturally, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, guitar, what can you say? Yeah, that kind of selfish, aggrandizing attitude that walks on other people, steps on other people as long as you get ahead. Well, naturally then, that's going to cause dissensions, which is the next thing that Paul lists. Decostus is the word, but it's also decostasia, Literally, it means a second standing. So it means to take a different position, to create disunity, to create dissension, to create division or sedition among people. Uh, You may remember in the Proverbs that it says, six things God hates, and the seventh is an abomination. And do you remember what that seventh one was? sowing discord among brethren. Okay, so that's where Paul is getting this. This is what he's thinking about, this idea of creating dissension and creating divisions against people who should be at unity with each other. And then very much like that is the next word, factions. However, the word is heresis. If that sounds familiar, it's the word heresy. As you're creating Religious heresies, you are creating divisions and factions among brethren. So then Paul's next word, and to me this makes sense, that if you're full of anger and jealousy and disputes, that naturally you would start engaging in, this word is difficult to say, it's phthonus. So you got to get the F and the T right against each other, Phthonus. Translated envying, but it means ill will caused by your jealousy. So it's a spite against other people, an evil feeling, a wrong desire to possess what belongs to other people. So it's more than just being jealous that they have it. It's creating the desire to go get it at any expense. If you have to run over them, it doesn't matter who you have to hurt, you're going to satisfy that desire that is eating away at you that you're not getting everything in this life that you think you deserve. Does this sound like anybody you know, by the way? This is just human condition. I guess I won't ask, does this sound like you? Because the more you think about it, the more, <laughs> the more you realize this is just what we're all like by nature. If the Holy Spirit was not constraining us, this is how we'd be acting 24-7. This is how we'd behave with other human beings, because this is just our natural tendency. Okay, then a couple of activities that are the result of those inward attitudes. The first one is methay. It's the common word for drunkenness. It's a reference to an intoxicant. And so it means to be intoxicated. It's just the excessive use of strong drink. The Bible has a lot to say about, yes, you can drink wine, but don't drink too much wine." Paul tells Timothy, "Take a little wine for your stomach's sake and you're often in infirmities. There's no problem with having a little bit of alcohol. The problem is, too much, anything is destructive. Uh, I take showers. Give me too much water, I drown, because too much of anything is destructive. A little bit of sugar on your tongue, helps the medicine go down. Come on, sing with me. (laughs) Too much sugar, diabetes. Too much of anything is destructive. It's the same thing with strong drink. A little bit of alcohol, okay, the Bible allows that that could be the case for you. But drunkenness is strictly forbidden. Be not drunk with wine, says Paul, leading to you going out into the society and carousing. Most people, as a general rule, don't go out rioting and carousing. This is also the word for orgies. You don't typically do that unless you're in an altered state of mind because you've been drinking all night. You don't leave your house, get in the car at, you know, 8 o'clock. You're going out for the evening. You don't get right in your car and go straight to fighting somebody. You get in your car, you go to the bar, you get yourself a few drinks, and then you're ready to fight. You're ready to carouse. You're ready to riot. So it means reveling. It means rioting. It means drunken carousing that's commonly associated, by the way, since I've been connecting some of these things to uh, the religious worship of the Gentiles in the region that Paul is dealing with. There were also bacchanalia feasts. Are you familiar with the word bacchanalia? Those were festivities and worship to the god Bacchus, who is the god of wine. And so it was part of a religious process as well to drink wine and to get drunk and to have these bacchanalia feasts. And so Paul is, in this list, not only saying we as human beings have a natural tendency to be completely egocentric, me first, and that's where so many of these things fall, but then also behaviorally, we have a tendency to worship things that we should not worship. And then under the cloak of worship, get involved in sexual things and drinking things that in and of themselves are rebellious against God, but are hidden behind. Well, it's it's religious. And so Paul has laid out all these things that he says should be obvious, that the deeds of the flesh are Evident, But I can't help but chuckle when he gets to the end of the list and he says, things like these, not, not just these things, but all the other associated things that you can think of that are like these things in the list. In other words, if you are drawn to egocentric me-first behavior, even if it's not something that Paul listed, it's still an act of your flesh because it is the opposite of being sacrificially loving toward other people. And so Paul could say things like these, of which I forewarn you, means I'm reminding you now, just as I have forewarned you, means I told you about this when I was there, I'm just going to keep saying it over and over and over that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. No, the key word right there is practice. In the Greek, what it means is lifestyle. This is the way you walk. Remember a moment ago, he said, walk by the spirit and not by the flesh. Then he said, these are the things that the flesh looks like. These are behaviors of the flesh. And then he said, don't walk in that flesh. Don't practice those things. Don't make those things typical of the way you behave. Don't let that be essential to who you are. So every once in a while, are you going to feel jealous? Sure. Every once in a while, are you going to get angry? Yeah. But you know what? You can't do it in clear conscience. Every once in a while, your ego's going to rear up. Every once in a while, you're going to be disturbed by the stuff of your life. But you're not going to be able to continue in that because it's not your practice. By the way, we use that word the same way to this very day. Uh, it doesn't just mean I'm good at this because I did it over and over again. I've practiced the piano or i practice practiced drums. It means lifestyle. It means what you do. George has a law. Practice. practice. Yeah, because that's what he does for a life, for a practice. That's the way Paul is using the word here. He is saying, as a style of life, as a mode of life, as typical of your character and who you are, don't be like this, because people who practice such things as I just listed are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because they don't have the Holy Spirit of God, as a governor on their behavior. Therefore, God did not choose them, did not elect them, did not redeem them, did not give him his spirit. And they are going to fall under his judgment. Therefore, as you look at the world and you see people behaving like that, don't wish you could behave like that because those are the people who are ultimately going to fall under the judgment of God and they are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. I guarantee that. The first week you're in the kingdom of God, you're going to look back on the way that you walked out your life, and you're not going to think about all the stuff you missed out on. You're going to think about how grand and glorious it is that God would save somebody like you. So then, having laid out what the deeds of the flesh look like, in verse 22, he says, but the fruit of the spirit is and he's going to construct a list. So let's quickly look at that list, and you're going to see that every one of these things are absolutely opposite the stuff we just looked at. That's why I took the time to go through the list word by word so that you could get some sense of what Paul was describing as fleshly activity, because it was all me first. It was all self-centered. It is all motivated by I am who I am, and I'm going to be like I am regardless of what you think. I will walk over you if I have to. The opposite of that is what the Holy Spirit of God produces in you, which, by the way, means this is stuff you could not do if it weren't for the Holy Spirit. Had God not put his spirit in you, not only would you not be able to do these things, You wouldn't know that you couldn't do these things, and you wouldn't care that you couldn't do these things. And you'd probably look at people who do these things and think, well, you're some kind of weak Christian. People who will look at people who are kind and loving and gracious and sacrificial to each other and say, well, yeah, that's that's good for you, but that's not me. I'm going to get mine. (laughs) Whoever dies with the most toys wins. I actually saw a sign that said that. I was just quoting a sign. Deeds of the Spirit, the very first one, of course. Paul has already said that the whole of the law is fulfilled in one word, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He has already said that if you walk by the Spirit, you're not going to carry out the desire of the flesh, and as a consequence, you're going to serve one another through love. So naturally, as he's creating this list, he would start with agape, which is, I keep emphasizing, self-sacrificing love that is demonstrated in the fact that Christ himself gave his life and died for sinners, and that is the kind of love that God is characterized as having. That kind of sacrificial, self-giving love which he has, which his son demonstrated, and then the people who have his spirit engage in. And it is, as I said, it emphasizes giving of yourself for the good of others. I have defined agape through the years so many times as doing what is best for the one who is being loved, regardless of whether the one being loved appreciates it or knows it or responds to it. It's self sacrificial love because that's what's good for the one who's being loved. Look, when Christ died for you, you weren't here and you walked through much of your formative life not caring not thanking him, not worshiping him, not being aware that he did it. But he still did it. That is self-sacrifice. Because he did for you what was best for you, even though he was not improved at all by it. He did it out of love. He did it out of self-sacrifice. Got it? Okay, so if that's what your Lord would do for you, How should we all be treating each other? Mm -hmm. Same way. If you say that you have the same Holy Spirit that I have, then you should also be acting and treating each other in that same self-sacrificial way. Second word is kara, translated joy. It means cheerfulness. It's translated sometimes as a calm delight. I just like that combination of words. A calm delight, gladness that is great gladness, because the Bible speaks of exceeding joy. Not just joy, but joy overflowing, joy abundant. So it's a deep, abiding, inner rejoicing the kind of rejoicing that was promised to those who abide in Christ. John 15, 11 says exactly that, that we are promised this joy because we continue in Christ. So it doesn't depend on circumstances because it rests on God's sovereign control of everything. The world is a mess right now, but the world has always been a mess. I mean, there was a flood way back when because the world was such a mess. God looked down and saw that the hearts of men were nothing but evil continually. The world's always been a mess. And yet in the midst of this mess, have you ever found yourself being joyous? Satisfied? Calm? Confident? Well, that's because you know what the world doesn't know, which is that God is sovereign on his throne and in control. And that gives you the next word, "irene," which is peace, to be at one with God. It's also a word that is used for quietness and rest. It's like an inner repose, an inner quietness, even in the face of adverse circumstances, even in the face of trouble. And in fact, Paul says that that kind of peace defies human understanding. Human beings who are nothing but flesh look at this crazy world and you know run around with their hair on fire because they're just so upset about what's going on in the world, and yet we have this peace that passes understanding. That's a gift of the Holy Spirit. That's why we walk by that spirit. If you have that kind of peace, it will produce in you macrothumia, which is patience. As I was looking up translations for patience, one of the synonyms it used was, Longanimity. Has anybody ever heard that word before? You know, I'm a word guy, so I enjoy it when I find words that I go, hey, that's, that's a great word. Longanimity is a disposition that bears injuries patiently, according to Merriam-Webster. I like that description. If you have a general disposition, a general character within you, that can bear up under injury and do it patiently, even as other people are insulting you, even as other people are doing harm or taking things from you. If you can bear up under it, it's because you have that peace that passes understanding because the Spirit of God resides in you and you know that God is absolutely sovereign even over these events. I like that. It's a form of forbearance. It's a form of fortitude while you're forbearing. It's long-suffering. The next word is kristotes, which is kindness. The essence of the word, the the word that kristotes is derived from, is a word that means usefulness, which I find interesting. It's excellence in character or demeanor. It's benevolence in action, such as God demonstrated toward men. God was kind toward sinners. And therefore, we can rightly be called to be kind to each other. Agathosune is goodness, virtue, or beneficence. It can be thought of as uprightness of soul and uprightness in action in reaching out to others, to do good to others, even when it's not deserved by the others. It's that kind of sacrificial giving to others. And then the final three graces that Paul mentions are the guides to the general conduct of a believer who is led by the Spirit. He mentions three things. Faithfulness, pistis, we've talked about that a lot. You know, or at least you should know, that is faith in Christ, that is faith that God has it, that God is sovereign, he's on his throne, he's going to make it all come out right, he's going to judge accordingly and he's going to judge justly. It is faithfulness, it is a persuasion of the truthfulness of God and his word. And then a tough one for most of us, gentleness, prautes is the Greek word, and it means a mildness or a meekness. In the Bible it says Moses was the meekest of men. And then you read about him in his anger striking the rock a second time and God is so upset with it that he can't go into the promised land as a result of that activity. You think, that's a guy with a bad temper. And yet God would say he was meek. Because what that word really means is In everything that he was, even in his temper, even in his outbursts, even in his impatience, in all of that, he had a bridle on him. He was controlled by the spirit of God. He was kept under control. And thirdly, self-control. That's a tough one for all of us. And it is the opposite of ego. It is the opposite of pride and arrogance and me first. Self-control. It comes from a root word that means strong in a thing or that you are masterful at a thing. So it's being temperate. It's being able to control your own temper, to control your own jealousy, to control your own behavior, to walk after the spirit and not after the flesh and that I stress again just like all of these virtues of the spirit these are things that we just can't naturally do we don't naturally desire them we don't try to be that way until the spirit of God takes up residence in us makes us a new person we are regenerated we are born again and as a consequence there are behavioral differences that come about as a result of God saving you So here's how Paul wraps it up. Verse 23. Against such things, there is no law. I think he's talking bigger than the Mosaic law there. I think he's saying, if this is your behavior, there is no society anywhere that is going to create laws that say, don't be like that. Because it's good for a society. It's good for people. It's good for the general welfare that you act like that, that you act kindly, that you are sacrificial, that you are helpful, that you are long-suffering. Those are all beneficial character traits. And so Paul says there's no restriction against being that way. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. But if we live by the Spirit which we do. Notice the contrast. I'm out of time. I've got to hurry. Notice the contrast between crucified. That's death. Nobody was ever crucified and then had a happy, jolly life after that crucifixion is death by contrast there's life in verse 25 you've crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires but then you also live after that crucifixion because you live by the spirit it is the spirit of Christ who himself was crucified and was raised again and who lives everlastingly therefore the contrast is a very Christian contrast between crucifying your flesh destroying the works of your flesh in favor of walking by the Spirit of God and then living in that Spirit and walking it out in your life. Maybe I'll emphasize that more completely next week. I've got to wrap up. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh and its passions and its desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit and let us not become boastful. I kept saying all of these deeds of the flesh all come down to ego. They all come down to pride. They all come down to boastfulness. So Paul is able to synopsize the whole of it by saying don't be boastful. Just don't be all about yourself. And don't be challenging one another. And don't be envying one another. I will stop right there. We will put a pin in it and we'll pick up right there next week. Turns out I had way more thoughts and notes today than I had minutes in an hour. So, I'm just trying to gain sympathy from all of you. So, I hope that worked. So, did you learn anything this morning? Was it worth getting up, getting dressed and hauling yourself down to church today? Yeah. I hope you understand the difference that Paul keeps drawing between the flesh and the spirit and the flesh wants to do what the flesh wants to do and you would be slave to your flesh and the sinfulness of your flesh were it not for the grace of God that he would send his son to redeem wretches like you and me And that he would pay for all of that sin, all of that rebellion, that he would fully, completely redeem us off the slave market of our sin and set us free. We're free from the law, but we are also free from our natural fleshly desires. Therefore, we are able to walk in the spirit. And therefore, we should change in our behavior and demonstrate that we are people of the Spirit of God, that we are Christian people. We don't do good works to get saved, but we do good works. You got it? it.
0: Thank you